Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you'd rather not take my word for it, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Emily Austin. Emily is the author of Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead, which was published in 2022 by Simon & Schuster Canada and has been published in multiple other countries in many other languages. The novel was long-listed for the Stephen Leacock Memorial Medal for Humor, shortlisted for the Amazon First Novel Award, and a finalist for the Ottawa Book Awards. BuzzFeed called the book the perfect blend of macabre and funny. Emily and I talk about how studying library science helped her avoid some of the cliches of queer fiction, the disassociation she feels about her own book's success, and how having a readership has made her feel some responsibility when it comes to writing narratives about queerness and mental health issues. I also take a moment to scare Emily just a little about coming out as a poet. Last week, I was clearing out my youngest kid's uh, bedroom. He's a reader, so he has... So his bookshelves are packed, and... One thing that was not fun was I had to pull out a lot of the picture books that he just, he's too old for now. Yeah. And I had to decide like between like sentimental favorites and the ones that are like, yeah, we can, yeah, or we have doubles or whatever. Right, right, yeah. So I ended up with these two big bags of books that I was going to put in like little libraries around the neighborhood and donate to his school and daycares. And there was one book that I looked at and was like, why did I put this in here? And I was like, oh, maybe it's a duplicate, but I, was, I had to yank it out. And I wanted to show you, you can't see this on the audio, but it's Frog and Toad together. I love Frog and Toad so much. That's why I wanted to bring it up. What is your connection with this book? Because just coincidentally, like days ago, I pulled it out and like, I can't let go of a Frog and Toad book. Frog and Toad, I just think, I just think it's so sweet and funny. I love, uh, I love the story of the author, uh, I think part of my connection to it is that I read it as very queer coded even though mm-hmm. it doesn't come across that way. And uh, it reads to me as like a very cute, cozy story about two gay toads and frogs. <laughs> that is, That's what it is. <laughs> that is amazing. And and this is, I didn't, wasn't even going to go there, but there is a joke in my new book that came out a couple months ago and I wasn't going to use this to promote myself. But there's literally a joke about a dad reading a book to his little kid and he talks about how it features this frog and a toad who okay. basically act like an older gay couple. Yeah. <laughs> like this sort of like, <laughs> they're comfortable with each other. They've clearly like, they've exactly. just been hanging out for a long, long time. And they love each other. Yeah, they're cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to start off with is kind of in the same realm in terms of like, you know, children's books in a way. Although... In this case, it's a book kind of written by a kid. You've written about discovering a novel in an old email address. 
Like you found your way into an old email address and found a novel that you had written. And I guess, I guess you forgot about it. Did you, did you forget that you wrote a novel when you were 15? I did forget that. And, and good for you. You've done homework. That's really (laughs) That's what I do. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I looked through an old email address and I used to write, you know, just for fun all the time. And I've sort of, um, I used to delete everything that I wrote. So it all kind of just went away from my mind. And I found something that I managed not to delete when I was a teenager. And uh, yeah, and read, I had written this whole, it was pretty bad, but it was (laughs) interesting. It was interesting to read because I don't have many artifacts of the things I wrote as a teenager. And it was sort of insightful and um, it made me think, I wish I didn't delete everything else. It was sort of uh, fun to look back on. What was the urge to delete? Why were you thinking, were you just thinking like, oh, this is, this is no good. This is no good. Or were you embarrassed by what you were doing? Why were you deleting everything? I think it was partly that I didn't like, um, I had pretty low confidence in my ability to write, particularly when I was younger, because um, when I was growing up, I was, I was weak in, uh, in like English class uh, until I was a little older. And I always sort of just believed I was really bad at it. Um, but I still had this compulsion to write. I just thought it was fun to write. So I was writing more for the sake of it being a fun exercise for me and less so for me to have anything to come out of it. Okay. And I would have been embarrassed for anyone to read it because I thought it was bad. So I would. Did delete. you have did you have any friends who were sort of writerly or bookish or was it like this very secret thing that you were doing? Uh, well, my mom's quite bookish and. Um, yeah, some of my friends, not like extremely, but yeah, I had friends who liked to write and, um, but yeah, I wouldn't have really, until I was a little older, I wouldn't have talked about how I did that. Definitely not. I didn't think of it as, uh, I, th- I was embarrassed to, to be doing it. I think when I was a teenager. And you mentioned that you weren't so great in like English classes. And as part of that, you wrote an essay about this and where you found this, this unpublished novel, you talked about like you weren't reading until much later than a lot of kids. You were, you were struggling. You had, you know, um, challenges with reading. Yeah. Which is really odd when you think that like you went, then went on to like study library science. Yeah. (laughs) You really took a turn. Yeah. You've written multiple books. You're teaching. Um, I look, took a look at your Instagram feed. It's about 80% pictures of used bookstores. Yeah. So you're clearly, (laughs) And when honestly, when I see people with pictures of used bookstores in particular, like anybody can go into a new bookstore and take pictures of pretty shelves and look at all the books. But there's something about used bookstores that's like crossing the line from <laughs> casual into serious biblo- bibliophile. <laughs> yeah, you're you're looking for like the hidden treasures of like this weird book that you can't. It's it's not in print anymore. Oh, right. and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how? How do you make that switch? Or was that always kind of two weird threads in your in your personality? You're a you're a bibliophile and yet you're struggling with you think, know, reading. I think it um I think it says a lot about how uh so when I I'm pretty sure I'm dyslexic, I'm not sure, but I had a learning disability that impacted my ability to learn how to read. And I I think um you know, it, that being dyslexic or whatever I am, I'm, I don't know what, it, I'm pretty sure it's dyslexic. You've never been diagnosed or you've never no. had it? I had, I remember doing testing when I was in grade three and I had to do like, I, I looked at ink blots and every like I did that whole thing and it was in relation to my learning disability. But 
so maybe they did and I never found out. I have no idea. They, I did some testing. I don't know what the output of it was, but I was told I had a learning disability out of that testing. Just, they didn't give me specifics, but um, yeah, I think, uh, so I, I went into high school in uh, applied track English, um, not in, I, I don't know how it works everywhere. I don't know where your audience is, but that's like more, uh, um, you know, short-term college track uh, rather right, than university. Right. And you have to have university English to apply to university um, or academic level English. And in grade nine, I, I started in that college track, but I had a really encouraging English teacher. And one of our assignments was to write a short story. So I had to write a short story. So I submitted a, a short story, really genuinely believing it was bad and thinking I wouldn't get a good mark. I just was doing my homework. And um she gave it a really, she gave it like an A plus and then she entered it in a contest and it won for uh, the municipality I lived in. And then it won for the province, which was really genuinely so shocking for me. Wow. And it was this, it was sort of this enlightening moment for me of thinking, oh, maybe I'm not, maybe I could be, um, maybe I could be good at English. Maybe I could, uh, I just sort of believed that I, what I was told, which was that I was bad at English. Right. And despite all of my instincts, I was re like, I like to read once I learned how to read and I like to write stories and stuff. I just believed the sort of narrative given to me, which was that I was bad at English. I, I just bought it and then um, was very startled to be given the encouragement from a really nice English teacher. Are you still in touch with that teacher? Have you gone back to them and said, oh, you know, thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you? I have. So I've written her a letter. I don't live in the area anymore. I've written her a letter and I've sent her books before. And I, I normally mention her in the acknowledgements of things I write and things like that. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. That's like the, the, that's like the ideal, almost fairy tale version of like your true, you've sort of internalized this narrative that like, okay, well, reading's not for me, even though perversely I seem to be really attracted to it and yeah. I seem to be really into it but they keep telling me I can't read and I can't write so yeah. oh well yeah but then this one sort of person yeah. comes along and says no no actually exactly. that's you that is you yeah it really shows how I, I think especially with kids you need you need just one person to be encouraging I think that's a saying I'm not I'm, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased but the idea that if one person uh believes in you and cares enough about that it really like that had a dramatic impact on my I wouldn't have gone to university I wouldn't have uh, I went to library school I wouldn't have been able to have done any of that uh, or have the encouragement to be a writer obviously so yeah it's almost at the point where I would not be shocked if you went back to find that teacher and discovered they were like a kindly ghost that was like, <laughs> and nobody had heard of her nobody <laughs> else saw her and they were just my work is done here and they kind of like dissolved yeah. <laughs> yeah she died on the spot 50 years ago yeah. <laughs> yeah well hopefully that's not true but yeah <laughs> or maybe she's just never got the books or she moved she's like geez she could she could say thank you once yeah. in a while <laughs> <laughs> <Good enough. laughs> Well, you did go and you'd studied library science and you went to university, which is great. Um, were you writing all through school while you were doing your studies or did you put them aside or was this a constant thing that you were doing on the side? I think I was constantly, I really like writing. It's like, uh, uh, I find it really fun to write. So, and I'm profoundly introverted. So despite, you know, I did, especially in university, you know, I'd make attempts to be a social person and I was relatively, 
but what I would truly want to be doing in now and back then and all through, you know, the last while of my life is I like writing. It's like a fun, it's what I want to be doing. If I'm out somewhere, I'm thinking, oh, it'd be fun if I were sitting at my house writing right now. That's what I want to be doing. So it's always been like that, I think. Yeah. You did, Now I want to talk about the novel. I want to talk about everyone in this room will someday day be dead. Because I also came across something you said about early on it relates to your library science studies which is a project you did where you were studying the amount of queer fiction yeah. on the shelves of canadian libraries and from out of that project and i don't know how intentional it was you started to get a sense of certain kind of narratives were the norm in queer fiction it was like coming out stories yeah. or tragedies yeah, it, it always kind of ended that way. I, it I, either ended with them coming out of the closet or dying or there was some tragic yeah. ending. There couldn't just be. They're gay, they're queer they're and that's and they have everything else that everyone else has. Yeah. All those anxieties and all those troubles and loves and, and hates. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Did it, it and how that kind of opened your your mind to this idea like, oh, there are these cliches and tropes and. Mm. I don't want to, I don't want to get into those. I don't want to write those. For sure. Yeah. So I was in, uh, when you go to library school, you, you generally will take a collection development class, which is uh, a class where you learn about how to develop a library collection. So for example, um, just as a simplistic way of saying this, if you lived in a community where there were a lot of um, entrepreneurs, you'd want to have books about business for people. Right. And the same is true for for all, you know, you want your book, you want your community to be reflected in your collection because you want the collection to meet the needs of your community. And uh, and so we had this major project in that class, which was to pick a sort of um, type of book and to assess libraries across Canada for how well their collection was. And so I picked LGBTQIA plus books and um assessed libraries for their collection and part of the criteria that you would use would be uh you know for example statistics in that specific case statistics about how many people are members of the lgbtqia plus community but also obviously those books are not just meant to be read by people who are members of that community it's also you know obviously beneficial for people outside of that community to potentially read that and i think one indicator of that was like uh, hate crimes associated with um, queer people and other things like that. Um, and then when you build your collection, obviously you don't just want to pick any book that, you know, meets the criteria of being whatever your, you know, type of book is. You want it to be good quality. So when you pick children's books, for example, you want like if they have uh, if they've won awards, that's a that's a nice sign of being a book that would be worthwhile to be in your collection. If they're very popular, um, you know, how many people have, uh, you know, how how often have they been read outside of your library? Do people request them? That kind of there's this criteria. And there's also criteria just, you know, what makes a book good quality. So with children's book, for example, I remember learning things about like the amount of text to image picture, depending on the age, you know, if there's a huge oh, amount interesting. of interesting, yeah, things like that. Um, and so I looked for sort of the equivalent criteria for LGBTQIA plus books. And there was, there was some research about, you know, there being, and things have evolved since then, you know, I'm about 10 years out of library school at this point, and there's a lot more 
great, good quality LGBTQIA plus books, but especially at that time, there were fewer. And, uh, and that's where I found some of that criteria, which was, you know, all, all books about this shouldn't be about coming out. All books about this shouldn't be, you know, um, sort of a story told to make you understand that someone loves their partner by having the partner die or something like extreme like that. It always seemed yeah. to be sort of moral teaching that, you know, um, you know, queer people matter because look how distraught this person is when their partner dies. Um, and there were other, there was other criteria too, like, um, you know, like if the author is a part of that community, for example, um, and other things. And, and anyway, so I assessed libraries across Canada at that time. And I found that they didn't have like, based on the number of how many people were queer and how, you know, I came up with a, it was a small percentage of their collection that should be, uh, books about LGBTQIA plus people and no, no libraries had that amount. And then the second part of the project was to recommend what books they should add. And particularly at that time, there weren't enough, like there weren't enough um, to meet, to fill the the hole. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just a matter of the books not being there. It was also a matter of uh, not enough books that met the criteria existing. Again, this was 10 years ago and there's a lot more uh, books now, but yeah, it was an insightful project for me. Well, it's kind of interesting too, because you can, you can apply that same basic idea of like, there are these these established narratives that that predominate you can apply that to a different era of novels about immigration where they yeah. have to be they yeah. have to follow a certain we arrived in this country there was this yeah. struggle and etc cetera, etc cetera. so right. as you said like 10 years have gone by and even in that short amount of time the space has opened up yeah. incredibly i i teach in a, a publishing course or publishing program at um, Humber College. So neat. And all of my students, when they talk about the books that they love, and they're all sort of 19, 20, LGBTQ plus fantasy is oh, huge. Awesome. Love uh, that. Anything that's LGBTQ plus, but also involves like dragons and swords and other <laughs> worlds and magic and yeah. potions, which tells you like the days when it's just someone in a small town struggling to come out of the closet or this yeah. couple and someone you know dies at the end exactly that's been put behind us yeah and there's obviously a demand for that yeah so that's that's part of why you know yeah that's yeah it's not an artificial thing of like this is good for you you should read these narratives because they're important it's like no we we're gonna gobble them up because they're fun because yeah, we want to just... read about dragons and, and gay people that's what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dragons and gay people is a good good title for a thesis yeah, I feel like that's yeah. a that's a graduate thesis <laughs> yeah, right there <laughs> now when you worked through that project and you came to that kind of realization was that just sort of in your mind like checking a box like okay not gonna do that or was it really present while you were writing the novel? Was it really the sense of like, I don't want to write a tragic, a tragic book. It's, it's gotta be something else. Yeah. I think, um, I definitely wasn't, I appreciate that I did that project because you're not aware of certain, you know, like we, like I do have an instinct to say, I want someone to read this and understand you know, that queer people love their partners and what would be an easy way to do that? Maybe if their partner died, you could see that they're, ex they feel extreme grief. Like I understand why that 
um, has happened in books. So I, I, I'm glad that it's hard for me to tell in retrospect what I did with that knowledge, but I'm glad that I was aware of some of those things because I don't think that I would have, um, I think there is a risk that I could have written something like that because, you know, we, if, if I wasn't aware of that. Um, so yeah, I think it helped. I think it helped me. There's a, there's a screenwriting cliche that, and there's that, and there's even a, a book with this title, but that if you want to, if you're writing a screenplay for a movie, and you want to establish really quickly that your character is uh, likable. You want your audience on their side. You have them save a cat. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> like or some version yeah. of that. Yeah. But there's actually yeah. a famous screenwriting book called Saving the Cat or Love Save it. the Cat. Yeah, and it's just this quick, quick like, how do yeah. I how do I establish yeah. them as a positive? Just yeah. have them save yeah. the cat. Yeah, <laughs> I get the it. The flip side. The flip side of what you're talking about is almost like kill the partner do you want to establish exactly. that this relationship is deep and meaningful and exactly. significant it's kill the partner off the and... partner, exactly yeah, yeah. the quick the, i can see the reasoning behind it but yeah we gotta think of new ways to communicate that and also i think that being the message we need to communicate is part of what is a little flawed like um i appreciate particularly in certain time periods when that was the message that wanted to be you know given but it sort of comes from a place of um, of trying to convince people that you know queer people loving each other is real, and it's like is that the story we need? We just shouldn't we just shouldn't have to be. That's not the story we need to be telling all the time. Like we can tell a story about you know a, a lesbian who just happens to be a dragon slayer or something. Like right. it doesn't need to be, you know, the message you receive from stories with queer people shouldn't be centered entirely around convincing non-queer people that queer people feel experience feel and experience genuine love for each other for example i would imagine too it takes the pressure off the idea of like having to portray the ideal relationship in other mm -hmm. words like queer relationships are not only real but they're a real problem sometimes <laughs> they're a real hassle like any relationship that's true yeah it's the the pressure to only present uh you know a queer relationship in a positive way because you don't want to show you know you don't want to show this as being some toxic abusive thing in cases if that's going to be taken as hearing that all relation all queer relationships are like that and yeah it's not a fair it's not a fair uh framework to be working in well obviously you didn't follow these tropes in in the book and one way to see that you didn't is when you read the reviews when you read the reception it had it's not all through this lens of like you know emily is showing us the importance and bringing us this moral lesson about this young <laughs> queer person it's right. more about like this is a fun grabby story that and we want to like follow this person through their through their troubles Right. I mean, so much has happened with the book. They, they had such great success. There's been multiple editions, multiple translations reviewed in the New York Times. This is going to sound like a weird question, but I have to ask it. Okay. Was was any of that expected? Like oh, when no. you went into this, did you feel have that feeling of like, you know, 10 people will read it or, you know, 100 people will read it and, and that'll be great. And I'll get a couple of reviews here and there and it'll be done. But was was there any moment where you're like, oh, okay, this is different? Like when you got the New York Times review, was that like, okay, this is a little different than what I thought? 
You know, yeah, I definitely had very low expectations. I I felt, um, and I still sort of feel like surprised to have even found like a literary agent, which I would say is the first, you know, uh, domino and all of those things. I did not expect, I wrote that book not expecting anyone to read it. Um, and I remember submitting it to, to my literary agent as, you know, and, and really thinking like, I, I think I did it while I was at work and it was just like a downtime <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'll just do this. Like it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something I really had any hope in or any expectation around. And I'm kind of ignorant about a lot of, um, publishing partly because um I only ever learned what you do up to the point of trying to get a literary agent anything that comes after that I always thought like that's out of reach so I'm not going to waste my time right. so for example uh I wouldn't I don't think that I knew even when the book was reviewed in the New York Times that that was significant I I think I was just like oh neat that's cool like I had no concept. oh wow <laughs> yeah so even, I mean, I'm definitely now I have moments of being like, wow, that is so cool that a lot of people have read my book and that, you know, this is so cool, but it still feels very um, sort of a surreal thing for me. And I feel very uh, sort of disassociated from it almost because I feel so, I feel deeply, un like I deeply did not expect um, the book to be published. <laughs> so even <laughs> anything after that has been very strange for me to process. And I kind of think I don't really, I kind of just, I'm like, well, how does it serve me to learn anything about that? I'll just push, doesn't really um, serve me. So, right. You don't yeah. want to internalize that sense of like, well, I am a New York Times review. Oh my God. <laughs> Definitely not. No. <laughs> You've also mentioned that you uh, have never been good at public speaking. And yeah. you you said earlier you were a deeply introspective person. Um, and yet, again, the, one of the things that you have to do when your book gets starts getting some attention is you have to be a little more of a public figure. You have to get out. You have to do readings. You have to do interviews. Has that at least you feel a little more comfortable with that? Or are you playing some sort of also disassociative game where it's like yeah. Emily, the writer, is doing that. Emily, the the actual person is still at home <laughs> sitting at home I think it's probably the latter yeah I think I went through um this book has a lot to do with mental health so I think it's obvious if anyone has read it that you know I've had some mental health challenges and I sort of have this convenient thing that happened to me which is not good but I in my mid-20s I was deeply apathetic like really deeply depressed and I was in a lot of student debt at the time and I um, my, my day job required that I speak in sort of boardrooms in front of people, which is sort of a nice way to transition into public speaking, because you're not standing at the front of the room. You're not, you know, it's not as if people are even looking at you, they're looking at the screen, but you have to speak in front of a crowd. So I sort of eased into that. And then in my mid twenties, I was, I had, it was in a ton of student debt. So I applied for a job at the local college, which I still do now. And, uh, and I was teaching library technician classes. And because I felt so deeply apathetic, um, it was not difficult for me to stand in front of a room anymore because I was in a strange mental state. So I was able, when I was a teenager, for example, I would have, uh, I was exempted from giving presentations from certain teachers because it was so brutal to watch me. I was so deeply anxious. And in university, I picked classes based on whether or not I had a presentation component. I would not have picked a class that had a presentation. Hmm. In my mid-20s, I had that, that unhealthy moment. 
and but it made it possible for me to speak in front of a crowd because I didn't care. I was I no longer felt I thought, you know, the world could explode right now. I don't care. I can teach people um, about this. I can tell the students back there, please be quiet. It doesn't affect me. I felt so strange. And thankfully, I've moved out of that. But I've kept the experience of being able to speak in front of a crowd. And so conveniently that happened before my book was published. So now I am capable of speaking. I I don't enjoy it at all. Uh, I do dread it. But when I'm in front of a room, I sort of, I do a disassociative thing where I'm able to, I'm able to do it. So maybe oversharing a little, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> but you have, you have access to that like apathetic, depressed 23 year old who can yeah. be like, I need your help right now. I need that yeah. superpower. Exactly. Yeah. Even though the destructive, you know, and, and unhealthy part of that, you can kind of. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that uh, that way of being able to speak publicly to anyone else. But that's the truth of how I'm able to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, you have not just one, but two books uh, coming in next year. You have a new novel, uh, Interesting Facts About Space. Yes. And then you have your first, I believe it's your first poetry collection. Yes. Uh, Gay Girl Prayers with Brick. That's amazing. Congratulations. So and they're both coming within a few months of each other in the, yep. in the spring. Yep. So you've gone from this place of like, well, no one wants to read my book. No one's going <laughs> to ever see my book. Oh, I've got an agent. I don't know what happens. Next. Now you have two books yeah. coming out. Are you looking at these like... Like what? Where do they exist in your head? Or are you just trying to again disassociate from them, and they're they're just going to be out there, and you'll have to live your own life? Yeah, I think I still I do kind of um, I don't sit very much with thinking about how I'll have a book out in the world and how I'll have a like I don't I don't really put too much thought to it, so it's hard to speak to that. Um, I do think I do have some moments of thinking, oh wow, I'm so lucky that this happened, and uh also moments of feeling like really like extremely privileged and grateful um I definitely have that but um and I am I do still I'm definitely I don't feel as insecure as I did as a teenager about writing I'm more you know I used to would I wouldn't want anyone to read it now I'm like okay you can read it it's it's fine <laughs> yeah but I am sort of built on a person who is very uh insecure about that so it's a strange it's strange. It's it's a weird clash of things to think. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's bizarre. Yeah. Did you start writing the new novel um, before the previous one came out? Or yes. so did you have a good, like, sizable chunk of it done? I think, yeah, I had um, I had started writing it before it came out in the world, which uh, and I would say it like the draft of it was well, was pretty advanced. The editing of it happened after, which is a considerable amount of effort goes into that, obviously. Um, but the draft of it was mostly written before everyone in this room came out. So I had an agent, but I had no idea how my first book would be received. So I am like, sometimes people will ask, uh, and I know that's sort of related to the topic of your podcast. I'll ask, you know, how did it impact you in your writing of this? And I'm sort of lucky to have uh, not been very impacted because I didn't have a chance to, for example, read any review of the first book. I did I did have a chance to do that while I edited it. So I'm sure it did impact me in some ways. But in terms of when I first started writing it, I wasn't thinking like 
I was still thinking no one's going to read this. I just am lucky enough to have an agent. I should try to write another book right. so I can get another book out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there, you didn't have that thing of like reading a review and says, well, they say I'm really quirky. Is this new book quirky or yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, definitely am not. I a quirky writer? Do I, yeah. is there too much quirk? Yeah. Do I need my... to hold down the quirk? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing that has obviously changed is that you have an audience now, like there is a built-in readership that wants your new book, wants to read your new book. And does that change things for you as, at all in the sense of like, this isn't going out and who knows, maybe it'll fall in a ditch somewhere or maybe it'll land in everybody's hands. This is absolutely gonna land in some people's hands. Does that change your your sense of yourself as a writer or what you've done? I think it does. And I think something that, that I've noticed lately in my writing now is that I think about... Um, I think more about, I used to, so like I said, I used to write because it was a fun activity for me and I enjoyed doing it. And I really genuinely didn't think anyone would read it. I had maybe a tiny bit of hope that maybe I could have a book, but it wasn't realistic to me. And so I could write something that, for example, like when I think of that time period when I was deeply apathetic, I could have written a very negative, dark book and it not, and not consider uh, the reader. <laughs> I would have just thought, this is what I feel like writing. Now I notice that I do think, is this what should be put out in the world? Um, mm. Is this what I would want? Because I notice it's not everyone, but there is, you know, I get quite a few messages from people who have had uh, mental health challenges and who are queer. And a lot of them tend to be younger, um, like early mid twenties. And I do kind of think, um, you know, in my older 34 year old <laughs> mind what what do I want to give those people to read and it does make me more likely to write um like hopeful something with a little bit of hope in it for example which I think is good I don't think that's a bad thing I think um that's been the major thing is is I never would have thought before is this what should be put out in the world and now I think is this worth putting out in the world or is this maybe not something I should put out in the world? It's almost a sense of responsibility has come into it where maybe that yeah. never was never a consideration exactly. before. Exactly. Yeah. Which also probably felt like would have felt almost like delusions of grandeur before. Yes, like exactly. my responsibility as an I know. unpublished. And even now I think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't think like that. But I, I do think like, like when I'm writing something, if I write something that I think, hmm, that could be received in a way that could negatively, I think, I don't want to write that. That's not what I want to, that's not what I want to write, but yeah. Yeah. Well, not to add to your, your mental burden with these new books coming, but <laughs> I do have to say, I, I mean, I am, I am married to a poet. I oh. know a lot of poets. I don't write it myself. I'm too much of a coward oh. <laughs> uh, and I don't have the facility for it. And I have to say like, there is something different about coming out with a second novel and coming out with a first collection of poetry. Like yeah. the novel's gonna have its own life and it's gonna have its own, you know, engagement with the readers. But with poetry, it's 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 very direct. It's very like you're much more vulnerable and exposed. Yeah, do agree. you feel that? Do you feel that a little bit? I do, yeah, because it's a little, yeah, like, you know, the novels are fiction and the poetry, the poetry, uh, it reclaims like Catholic prayers and biblical passages to empower women and members of the LGBT. So it's also fiction, but there is obviously 
more of a feeling that this is poetry that I wrote. It's more associated with me in a way that feels less fictional, like a like a novel does. So yeah, it feels a little more vulnerable. Um, and I also feel more ignorant about uh, poetry and, you know, new to to the experience. So, you know, a little more nervous in that way. But yeah, it's definitely different. It feels very different. Well, I will, I'll just give you a, a, a little bit of fair warning that my my impression of the Canadian poetry scene <laughs> is that it's a little cattier than the novelists. Oh, novelists no. tend to be like, novelists tend to be like, even if we didn't like what you did, it's like, you did that thing. Good for you. We're all in this. Mm. Poets from my experience tend to be like, yeah, like the, the okay. claws come out a little bit. They're a little like, what are you doing in our, in our little club? This is oh. our club. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll be braced for that. I appreciate the warning. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.